Lord God, we, we thank you. You are a good, good Father. And so, Lord, we, we come before you as your children, loved by you, all because of what you've done and not because of us. And, uh, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray that you'd open your, your word, uh, open our minds to understand it, that you would uh, open our, our hearts to take it in and apply it in our lives this week and forevermore. I pray this your name, Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'd ask you to go ahead and have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15. Because of the font sizes on these screens, it's hard to get 31 verses of Luke chapter 15 on slides. I tried and then ditched it and got a few just place markers. But uh, uh, our tech team does a wonderful job of getting the, the images there. My name is Mark Schleif. I'm one of the elders here at Capital Community Church. My wife Angie and I are on our eighth year here in Beijing. And um, we still have one of our children at home. She's a senior this year. Uh, Susanna's currently teaching three-year-olds downstairs in Capital Kids. Uh, was thinking back when we were first married, which has now been 27 years ago and some change, uh, we, the first church we attended, the pastor had a saying. He said, every, at least every five years, the church needs a new pastor. It could be the same guy, but they need a new pastor. And so for all you men that Rick's been talking about this morning, that if you're one of those men married to a wife who needs a new husband, the good news is she can have what she needs and it can still be you. Because God's mercies are new every morning. And so that's, and that's what we count on. We need to be renewed every day as he, he comes to us. Have you ever been in one of those uh, awkward social settings. Maybe there's someone who's well-known in the community. They move through a lot of different social circles, and a party is given in their honor, and people from all walks of life attend. And they all know the guest of honor, but they sure don't get along with each other. Well, in Luke 15, we find one of those awkward social settings that someone has given an event, and they've invited Jesus of Nazareth to come this new itinerant rabbi who seems to have an amazing power from God. And the people who are there include those who are called tax collectors and sinners. And whenever it puts sinners in quotes in the Bible, it's basically euphemistically referring to people involved in prostitution and other obvious areas of sin. Because everybody there was a sinner except the Lord. But it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Those who were there and tax collectors and from dubious professions and, and walks of life that were looked down upon, I don't think they were prideful in their presence. They were just grateful to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Whereas I think the religious leaders were more that Jesus was lucky to have them present because they were standing in judgment of him and his behavior. And so Jesus, and I, I really think it probably there were a lot of, uh, we, we think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be around the Lord? But I have a feeling that some of the things he said, if we were there to hear them in person, would have made us feel very, very uncomfortable because they strike straight to the heart of who we are. But Jesus tells a story. He told them this parable. 
And he starts with something very familiar, as he generally would do. He said, suppose one of you had 100 sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and goes after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. But then he calls all his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so he can speak to something where when you lose a sheep, sheep are property, sheep have value. Everything, everybody can agree on the value of sheep, but some sheep are more difficult than others. And you know, it's really not flattering that the Lord refers to us as his sheep, because sheep are pretty stupid animals. They're very hard to go. A sheep can fall over and not be able to get itself back up because of the weight of its wool. If a, if a sheep ever gets into a stream, the weight of the water soaking into that wool can carry it away and drown it because it, it can't rescue itself. Sheep are prone to follow whatever snacks they can find amongst the rocks and wander off from the herd and, or from the flock. There's a reason you don't call it a herd because actually you can't herd sheep. You have to lead sheep and hope one sheep will follow the next one. It's just kind of like if you're not the lead sheep, the view never changes. But they, um, they, sheep sometimes get off by themselves and get lost. And those sheep are very hard to get back. But the shepherd has to put forth the extra effort to leave the other sheep back where the other shepherds are gathered and go search for that sheep. And he can't just lead it home. Often a shepherd would have to break the sheep's leg and then carry it back home. And for the next week or so, as that leg began to mend, that sheep couldn't walk around. The shepherd would carry it with him and keep that sheep in close proximity to himself until it learned not to wander away. And people understood this. They could say, yeah, a sheep has value. It's worth the trouble to go and find it and bring it back. So then Jesus says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. This lost coin is a silver coin, about a day's wages, a silver denarius. And she said, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every coin has equal value to the owner. If we just need an example in ourselves, just, just think about how hard it is sometimes to tithe new money you've received. And no, this is not, despite what Rick said, this is not a sermon on tithing. But the, um, the some, if I gave you 100 kwai right now, and you thought, oh, I should give that 10 to the Lord. Oh, it's so hard to break that 100. We don't wanna lose any part of it. Every part matters. And Jesus is using something from our own human impulses to say, every part matters. There's not one that doesn't matter. And everybody can agree on that. Everybody can agree on property and its value, but then he makes it personal. He makes it about people, and Jesus continues. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there invested wisely did well, made a name for himself. Well, no, actually he made a name for himself for a little while because it says he squandered 
his wealth and wild living. And for a while, probably had lots of casual friends that helped him spend his money. A nice entourage. But after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. About the worst job a nice Jewish boy could get is feeding pigs, which were unclean, filthy, forbidden animals. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He goes from a position of great privilege out on his own, and now is where no one gives him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare. Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard men. And then he did what was very important. He did get up and he went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Must have been looking. He was filled with compassion on him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him this prepared speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him, said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring that fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine was dead. He was as good as dead to him. He was gone, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And he heard, he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants to ask him, what's going on? And the brother said, and the servant said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became furious and refused to go in. So his father come out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Why would Jesus tell this three-part story? Is he just trying to call out the religious leaders who are looking down on these tax collectors and sinners And saying, I know your hearts, I know your sinners too. Is he basically doing the same thing they're doing to him, just trumping them? What they're doing to these sinners, saying, well, you call them sinners, I call you sinners. Is there something more than that? Is Is he trying to make those people that they look down upon feel better and salvage some of their pride? I don't think so. I think Jesus has something. I mean, they already knew They're in terrible social status. They're not going to be invited to any Sanhedrin garden parties anytime soon. They're just there because somebody else is throwing this event. And so Jesus didn't come to earth to make political statements. Jesus didn't come to earth to bring social change. 
Jesus didn't come to earth just to add to the store of human wisdom. Because all those things are stained by and flawed by sin. Jesus had a very specific purpose to come to meet our greatest needs, that we need to be freed from sin and death and made spiritually alive again, and that we need to be restored to relationship with God Almighty, our Creator Father. So I think that Jesus is simply fulfilling that purpose. You know, in John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. It's referring to Jesus Christ. He says, in the beginning, he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. So he has always been part of God's mission. But it then says in verses 14, 16, and 18, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. No one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus' purpose in his life and through his death was to reveal God the Father to us and then make it possible in his death for us to be reunited to him. And so he tells a parable, and parables are not straightforward explanations. Instead, they evoke imagination. They have layers to them. Yes, there's a meaning behind them, but there are so many different applications. And I think that one of the reasons that Jesus taught in parables is that he knew after his death, 50 days after he was resurrected, or after, and after he returned, sorry, not after he was resurrected, but after he returned to heaven, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would be given to every one of his followers. The Holy Spirit would teach them to understand the words of Jesus Christ, and it would unwrap and unveil the truths that were enfolded in these parables and reveal the personality of God the Father in greater and greater ways. So I think here he has a message, a truth which transcends the immediate social awkwardness, the religious perspectives. He's inviting everyone in the room, whether a tax collector or a prostitute or a leader in the synagogue or a high priest, to gain a sense of how God the Father viewed them, how he valued them, and how he loved every one of them. And that same truth applies to us today. When we hear these words, he's informing us of God's love for us. But it's not enough for us to be informed. We have to accept it by applying it to the way we live each day. And so I've titled this, Accepting Our Father's Love. You know, there's an interesting progression to this story. Everybody see the next slide is just, he starts with one of a hundred sheep. Maybe you go rescue one in a hundred and you're glad the 99 don't get out there. Then he goes to one of 10. One of 10 coins, you search the whole house and find it. But then he goes of one of two sons, but we'll see in the story it's really one of one because the father is after the redemption of both sons and their acceptance of his love. One of one sons. You know, in the story of these lost sons, we see how both sons have difficulty accepting the love of their father. This is, uh, they're, even though they seem very different at first, and despite what either of them may be, they may believe, 
Both of them are of equal, immense value to him. He loves them without condition. And so what results from the perspective of each son, they think I've got to earn my father's love or, or I, they have an oppositional relationship to their father. It's almost like it's them versus their father trying to figure out where do they stand and where do they place. From the father's perspective, it's not that way at all. So as Jesus tells this story, he's revealing how our human hearts, we're like the sons, react to the generous love of God the Father. So let's look at each of them one by one. The first we're going to look at is child versus father, the younger son early on. All of us begin life in a state like this younger son. His first response, he actually models two different responses to God. We're going to look at the first one is as he goes and leaves for the far country. He takes all the, his, the wealth and leaves for the far country. He desires to possess all that the Father provides. We have no problems with the general blessings of God. He gives us breath. He gives us life. He gives us our minds and our bodies to do the things that we do. He's blessed us with different abilities. He's blessed us with careers, possessions, families. We have no problem accepting those things. But the son wanted those things with the father completely out of the picture. You know, in that culture, asking for the inheritance while the father was still living was equivalent to what we hear ourselves, may have heard ourselves say to our parents or some teenagers say to us today, I wish you were dead. That's the son's treatment of his father. Yet the son liquidates assets and provides everything his son needs, everything that's coming to him, that would come to him when his father was dead, he gets it. You know, we all crave autonomy. We want to make the rules and establish them ourselves instead of submitting to them, particularly to the lordship of God the Father. But this father who stands here as a symbol of God's love for us gives the son the freedom he demands. This was a terrible scandal in the community at that time. For this father to behave in this shameful way, not to discipline his son, and yet his permissive allowance of the son is rewarded with exactly what everybody thinks is going to happen. Within a few days, the son takes all his wealth and runs as far away as he can get from his father. He does exactly what he wants to do until those general blessings run out. You know, God releases us and lets us sin. He lets us pursue our will. He lets us choose freely whether or not to love him. But there's also limits that he sets, and those are redemptive. He lets us come to the end of ourselves so that we realize our need for him. All the while, he's faithfully waiting for us to return to him. So let's look at the younger son a little later on. He ends up in this desperate situation, which leads to a significant choice. He is working at the lowest of jobs, and no one gave him anything. He's not even allowed to eat the food that's fit for the pigs. And at some point in our insistence on making our own way in the world, it's like what Rick was speaking about in, the, in the, the, his talk earlier, we encounter a sense of emptiness, a sure sign we've put our trust in something that can't sustain us. He comes to his senses. That's a great phrase. He comes to his senses. He remembers the generosity of his father, even to the hired help. He was always generous. Most of all, he recognizes his sinful attitude towards his father and towards God. But he makes one mistake. He thinks that now, because of all he's done, he's unworthy 
of his father's acceptance. He's basing his worth on his own performance, which has obviously been terrible. Even though we see the error of our past decisions, you know, we can still remain intensely loyal to our own system of beliefs that we've constructed. Um, we see the world and ourselves in a way, and our rules help us reject any alternative arguments. They help us reject any other perspectives. And we end up in one of two places, self-condemnation or God-condemnation. Self-condemnation, I say, I am just not worth it. Though at least those who condemn ourselves, we return to God, but always in this broken state. God can't do anything with me. I'm just useless to him now. Those of us who condemn God instead often end up staying in the far country. We've convinced ourselves there are no good options, and we refuse to believe any other reality. And many of us die there, never returning to the Father, in hopelessness. You know, when the son came dragging back through town, can you imagine the whispers? He gets through there, and he endures it. He knows he deserves it in his own thinking, and he gets away from home, and his father who has been looking intently for him, abandons all dignity. A Middle Eastern father would never run. He would never lower himself to that, but he joins his son in his shame. He runs to where he is. He throws himself on him, hugs his neck. I'm so glad you're home. I don't think there's a clearer picture in Scripture of how much God longs for us to come to him. And he comes, he doesn't listen to his son's protests, orders a royal treatment. His love for his younger son has nothing to do with his son's actions. It is entirely based in the father's good character and his choice to love his son. So let's look at the older son. Older son, here's what's going on, and he is furious. What is this theme Jesus is preaching on here? Does God like the bad boys? You almost kind of feel, if you see it that way, you feel a little sympathy for the older son has done everything right, the best of his ability. He refuses to join in this. It's said that when we don't have a design sense of how mercy and justice go together, that we can consider mercy unjust and justice unmerciful. In this case, he cannot believe his dad is gonna allow this vagrant, this ungrateful brother to come back home. And he, you know what, he, he states his circumstances in a state that's very like what his brother's actual state was in the far country. He says, I slaved for you for years. You never gave me anything, not even a goat. Now, I don't think he ever asked. If he had a younger brother who could walk in and demand the inheritance and his father gave him everything, the father's love for his sons was equal. He could have had everything or anything he wanted. His father says that to him, you're always with me. Everything I have, it belongs to you. He didn't ask. You know, sometimes we think we've convinced ourselves if we just do enough good things and deny ourselves enough bad things, God has to be pleased with us. He's obligated to reward us. He owes us. And when we see others seemingly getting away with all the fun of sin as we misinterpret it, we are furious. God, this just isn't fair. 
Our anger typically begins in a way that imitates God, in a judging of this is right and this is wrong, but it very quickly becomes a stance against God because we're angry because our rights, our glory is what we feel like has been violated, not God's rights, God's glory. God has the right to treat any of us as he chooses. God extends mercy to all of us. We become bitter, we become unforgiving, we become unjust because that's the way we think people have been to us. The father's love for his older son has nothing to do with his son's actions. It is entirely based in the father's good character and his choice to love his son. So we look at these three sons. Which son are we? Which son should we seek to emulate? Hopefully none of them. There's one more son in the story. It's the one who's telling it. The son of God, the perfect son. Abby, could you flip the, the next one up there? God's perfect son, Jesus, is sharing the heart of his father for every one of us in this story. He wants every one of his listeners to realize they stand in the same position in need of God, but able to receive everything that God possesses for them. This is this, his life lived through us. This is what Chris Watkins was talking about last week that Christ wants to live his life through us as he connects us back to the Father. He wants to restore that relationship. He was the perfect son. He obeyed his Father completely, even going to willingly die on the cross for our sins. He took the full punishment for every wayward rebel. He gave us his righteousness, which makes us completely worthy. Sons and daughters. He didn't even judge those who treated him so unjustly. He gave all that judgment over into the Father's hands and trusted him to make things right. You know, Blaise Pascal was a brilliant mathematician, philosopher, and a believer in Christ. He put it this way, and I think this fits very well with the, the story of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as we call it sometimes. He says, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. See that kind of in the... Pharisees and the older son. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Like that younger son in the far country. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. And he himself is a solution. Our proper love response to God the Father comes by letting Christ return his love perfectly, return the Father's love perfectly by living through us. He lived his full human life in full confidence in his father. That same confidence can be ours as we allow him to live his life through us. You know, good works, it is important to do good works. God loves good works, but he wants to do them through us. Good works are the result of his love at work within us. It's never a means to his love. You know, even as believers, we have difficulty breaking away, though, from that performance basis. You know, the incorrect conviction that that performance, how we obey or disobey, affects God's love for us. We sin, we think ourselves unworthy of him, we resist sin for a time, and then things go bad and we get angry. Lord, wasn't I doing things right? We have an enemy, Satan, is known as the father of lies, and he's always telling us things he wants us to believe instead of believing the father of truth and love, Father God. So let me ask you, do you believe it's impossible for God to love and delight in you? Do you believe that's impossible? If so, 
You're accepting Satan's lie that God loves us because of what we do. The truth is, God loves us because he's the God who loves. He is love. Do you believe the things you've done are too bad to be forgiven? If so, you're accepting Satan's lie that Jesus died only for little sins. His blood can only handle the little or the unintentional sins. The truth is, through the cross, he's taken away the judgment for all sin for those who believe. Do you ever think you have no reason to live? If so, you're accepting Satan's lie that you belong only to yourself. The truth is, we belong to God, have a God-given purpose. Do you believe your service to God requires anything as a plus one to Christ's work? As long as I have Christ's work plus intensive Bible study, as long as I have Christ's work plus faithful church attendance, as I have Christ's work plus careful sexual behavior, as long as I have Christ's work but responsible social connections, as long as I have Christ's work plus I go on missions, or plus I try to do well, or plus I don't do bad too often, plus, 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 when the truth is so, we're accepting Satan's lie that the grace work of Christ is insufficient. When we try to add anything to what Christ has done, it diminishes the glory of God. So we shouldn't do that. You know, Satan is very subtle. He works into our thinking. He even praises the goodness of God sometimes in our circumstances. You know, when, when we got that great job, Satan comes in and whispers in our ear, you know, that job is so great. Isn't God good? When things are going well in our family, our kids are happy, they're well, they're healthy, he comes and says, you know, isn't God good? When you live in a good situation, you don't have any worries for the moment, isn't God good? And the reason he does that is if he gets us listening to his voice instead of God's voice, as soon as that child gets sick or we lose that job or we're faced with those stressful circumstances, he says, wait, isn't God good? Why is this happening to you? We have to listen to the voice of the Father of truth whose love is always for us. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, loves me, who loved me and gave himself for me. It says, Christ lives that life in us. It's what Greg Geertis was talking about a month ago. We bear fruit of Jesus Christ through us as we remain connected to him. This is not a call to perform. It's a call to rest in Christ and the love of God the Father and let the life of the Spirit flow through you. I want to offer you an invitation, not to come forward right now as they're singing. I invite the, the musicians to come back up, but after the service, if you've been having trouble, if you find yourself in the place of the younger son in the far country, distant from God, maybe you've never experienced that love relationship, you've never seen that, I'll be up here, some of our, Rick, some of our other elders will be up here. We would love to talk to you about God's love for you. If you, like me, as a believer, vacillate between the younger son and the older son saying, Lord, I've messed up, I'm not worthy. Oh, Lord, I've worked so hard, why are you, why are you doing this to me? I just say, take to heart the Father's words, my son, 
You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would make these truths real in our lives every moment, every hour, every day, that your love for us is beyond anything we could ever expect. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.